Rogue's Gallery Uncovered. Bad behaviour in period costume. A non-judgmental poke into the scandalous secrets of history's greatest libertines, Lotharios and complete bastards. This podcast contains adult themes and a touch of colourful language. It's not suitable for use as a eulogy at the funeral of an elderly relative. Pearl's Necklace. Splashing out on the finer things in life with the 19th century's most extravagant courtesan, Cora Pearl. The following tale is written in the present tense of the period in which it's set, and as such may contain attitudes and opinions of the protagonists and their times which would today be considered unacceptable. As I'm not a lovesick 19th century Frenchman, those views and opinions are obviously not mine. Paris, 1867. I'll be honest, I don't really spend a lot of time at the theatre, or worshipping at the altar of so-called celebrity. I'm more of a sporting gentleman myself. The horses, don't you know? But last week, at the Theatre Bouffe Parisienne, I saw a filly playing the part of Cupid in Offenbach's Ophie aux Enfers that I'd happily ride all the way from Paris to Newmarket. I don't mind telling you, fellows, I think I'm in love with Cora Pearl. Now, I know that she's one of Europe's most famous courtesans, the toast of La Grande Horizontale, but I think if we could just spend a little time together, she'd understand my deep admiration for her and see just how much we have in common. Then, once pleasantries had been exchanged, we could rut savagely like wild animals on the Serengeti Plains. By Christ, but she's a handsome woman. Tall, shapely shoulders, with a waist so tiny you could span it with your hands and breasts so spectacular they could stop traffic on the Champs-Élysées. Underneath all the makeup that she wears, I suppose she could be considered somewhat ordinary looking, but there's something so powerfully earthy and erotic about her, I'm not surprised that men will pay a fortune for just an hour of her company. Her lovemaking skills are the stuff of legend, as is her ability to spend money. She lives a lifestyle so luxurious that Marie Antoinette herself would be put to shame. This evening, Miss Pearl appeared on stage before an audience made up, primarily it seemed, of French noblemen, wearing a costume that left very little of her marvellous body to the imagination. Only strategically placed jewels and precious stones protected her modesty. Even the soles of her boots were studded with diamonds. Behind me, a group of rowdy students, offended that the role had been given to a celebrity rather than a professional singer, were booing and catcalling her. But she seemed not to care. Damn long-haired bohemians. I suspect, though, that few in the audience were even remotely interested in what her voice sounded like anyway. And she knew it. The glorious minx. It came as the utmost surprise, then, when I learned that this love goddess who can wrap the most powerful men in Europe around her dainty little finger, was born humble Eliza Crouch in the English port of Plymouth. So how did she reach such Olympian heights of success and sensuality, you ask? Well, I've made some substantial inquiries. Cora's father, it transpires, was a wayward cellist who ran away to America when she was a child. Her mother, 
furious at this abandonment, told her daughter that her absconding father had, in fact, died and she'd never see him again. The shiftless wastrel, however, had left something of value behind before he decamped to the colonies. A ballad called Kathleen Maverine. Written the year Cora was born, the tune proved popular and lucrative enough for her to attend a girls-only boarding school at a convent in Boulogne. This was fortuitous, as Cora, Eliza's mother, soon remarried, and the young girl's relationship with her stepfather was far from a happy one. Cora attended convent school for eight years, learning French and how to carry herself as a lady of quality. On her return to England, the teenage Cora moved to London to live with her grandmother, a pious and God-fearing woman who attended church every Sunday. She found employment as a milliner, stitching hats for wealthy ladies. It was a position that bored her to distraction. Cora's only time away from the hat shop, apart from church of course, came when she and her grandmother would stroll through the bustling streets of the West End. As the couple explored Theatreland, the fancy carriages and expensive attire of passers-by filled her with envy. She longed to experience this exotic world without her grandmother's sour-faced presence. Of course, the many dangers faced by a young girl walking unchaperoned through the city streets are all too clear to those of us who read the daily newspapers. But Cora's rebellious and curious nature would not be denied, and one evening she made the fateful decision to walk home alone. The 19-year-old was approached by, in her words, a gentleman of around 40, who claimed to be a diamond merchant. He flattered and charmed her with promises of cake. Who doesn't like a slice of cake? But rather than a jolly baker's shop, he took her to a crowded and noisy drinking den, where, in its smoky confines, he plied her with cheap rotgut gin until she passed out. When Cora recovered consciousness, she found herself lying naked in a boarding house bed, with the gentleman furtively getting himself dressed in the corner of the room. Her virginity taken, the man impertinently asked if she'd like to become his companion. It was an offer the sobbing girl refused. So he put five pounds on the bedside table, made his excuses and left. Cora says that this experience gave her an instinctive horror of men, which is hardly surprising and should, I feel, serve as a warning for today's rebellious youth. Obviously, returning home no longer a virgin was simply out of the question, as she was now irrevocably ruined. Showing an admirable spirit of determination and enterprise, however, Cora used the money she'd been given to purchase herself some new clothes. She also rented a small room in Covent Garden, where she began to ply the trade into which so many fallen young women find themselves reduced. On a whim, she also changed her name. Eliza Crouch was no more. Cora Pearl was born. Now, despite her circumstances, Cora reveled in her newfound freedom and independence. While she absolutely loathed men, she found that she greatly enjoyed sex, and a plan began to form to use her obvious allure to rise above her lowly station. She met a gent by the name of Robert Bignall, the proprietor of the infamous Argyle Dance Rooms. A generation before, the Argyle had been one of the most exclusive venues in London. It had since, though, deteriorated into a collection of casinos and dance halls where cheap drink flowed, laughter was loud, and fashionably dressed young women enticed tipsy gentlemen into candle-lit alcoves for assignations at a price. 
Cora soon dominated this tawdry world. Her vivacious personality and boundless energy meant that all eyes were upon her as she spun around the dance floor to raucous young people's music like the polka. She quickly became Bignall's mistress and moved into a suite of rooms above the dance hall. Bignall was so enamoured of her that he took Cora with him to Paris on business. He claimed that she was his wife, although he was actually already married to somebody else. The Lying Swine The two enjoyed a whirl of gaiety and laughter, seeing the sights and mixing with Parisian society. When the time came to return to London, however, Cora was adamant that she'd stay in the French capital, and as a horrified Bignall looked on, she threw her passport into the fire of their hotel room. With a crestfallen Bignall back home with his wife, Cora made the acquaintance of a lonely sailor by the name of Daminard, who wanted them to wed, but was told, in no uncertain terms, that Cora hated men far too much to ever walk down the aisle with one. Also crestfallen, he took his broken heart back to sea. Cora immediately formed a liaison with one Monsieur Robis. He possessed the money to set her up in slightly finer accommodation than she'd been used to, and the social contacts to introduce her to the upper echelons of French nobility. Cora began to entertain men of substance, who appreciated her beauty and amorous skills and were happy to pay for it in gold, jewels and fancy gowns. For all his highfalutin ways, however, Monsieur Obis was little more than a trumped-up greasy pimp. He controlled Cora's life with un man d'affaires for six long years. So it came as a great relief when Cora heard that he'd unexpectedly collapsed and died from a heart attack. Those six years, though, had not been wasted, as Cora had learned all the myriad ways to ensnare, pleasure and keep the wealthiest and most powerful men in France. She used these hard-earned lessons to attract the first of what she described as her golden chain of wealthy lovers. His name was Victor Massina, the third Duke de Rivoli. Devilishly handsome, charming and with more money than Midas, he bought Cora her first house, which he filled with servants and even a private chef. It was with Messina that she first realised her genius in hosting parties. At one event, so many guests were clamouring to attend that when the doors were finally shut, they simply climbed in through the windows. Messina also furnished her with the funds to gamble extravagantly at fashionable casino resorts such as the German town of Baden. It appears, though, that this was the beginning of a gambling habit that's seen her get through several fortunes to date. She seems, though, not to care how much money she spends, but then why should she? Of course, just because she was enjoying horizontal refreshment with Messina, it didn't mean to say that she wasn't making a stitch with other well-heeled fellows as well. There was Prince Achille Moa, a besotted old duffer who bought her an entire stable of horses, complete with her own grooms, all decked out in yellow livery. Cora actually became a very accomplished horsewoman. It's all in the thighs, you see. In fact, it's often been said that she treats her horses far better than her lovers. Royalty couldn't get enough of her. The Prince of Orange, heir to the throne of the bloody Netherlands, no less, bought her a string of black pearls which she wore constantly. Charles, Duc de Mornay, half-brother to Emperor Napoleon III, well, he was another one. They met when, on account of her colourful reputation, she was refused entry to a fashionable gaming house, 
In typical flamboyant style, Cora had turned up with an entourage that consisted of a baggage wagon, six horses and many servants. This, however, did not cut any ice with the concierge, who completely ignored her demands to be admitted. As she turned away in embarrassment, de Mornay, entranced by her beauty, offered her his arm. Cora and her new beau made a grand entrance, and she was never refused entry again. When the elderly de Mornay collapsed and died, probably from exhaustion, Cora took up with the Emperor's cousin, Prince Napoleon. A strange fellow this, his nickname was Plonplon, and he looked like a village greengrocer. He was, however, totally besotted with Cora, fabulously wealthy and immensely powerful. He gave Cora two houses in which to entertain. One of them on the Rue de Chaillou was said to be the finest in France. I've heard that some underhanded snoop read one of her private ledgers in which she listed all the names of her lovers, the dates and times of their assignations and the various amounts that they spent on her. She also recorded her personal observations upon their physical endowments and performance, most of which were far from flattering. She had become, it seems, a very thorough and acute businesswoman, although obviously the idea of women engaging in such a masculine arena as business is most unseemly. In 1860, she caused a sensation when she attended a masquerade party dressed, or rather undressed, as the Biblical Eve. Her costume was about the size of a postage stamp, but her brazenness and fabulous contours were the talk of Paris for weeks afterwards. One facet of Prince Napoleon's character, however, that wasn't so generous was his almost obsessive jealousy and rank hypocrisy. So, while it was perfectly acceptable for him to have more than one mistress, Cora was under strict instructions to take no other lovers. Had it been anybody else, Cora would undoubtedly have told him to stick his head in a plum pudding. But the prince also wielded the power to have Cora deported. So she trod very carefully. I'm told that she instructed her other amours to simply refrain from seeing her for a while, before then secretly carrying on as normal. No man, however powerful, was going to tell her what to do, and even though Prince Napoleon was giving her 10,000 francs a month, she knew that she could earn more. Cora made it clear that she was running a substantial risk in seeing any additional bed partners. As such, those gentlemen visitors who were not related to Napoleon would be required to pay even more than usual for the privilege. Not one gentleman complained. Cora lived like a queen. She slept in black silken sheets embroidered with threads of gold. Excursions were made in a pale blue carriage with a bright yellow interior. Her heavily made-up face was covered in powder flecked with silver or crushed pearls, and she'd often dye her hair in outrageous colours to match her outfits. She once coloured her hair bright yellow and her dog light blue to match her famous conveyance. This caused a sensation along the Bois de Boulogne. It also caused the untimely death of the unfortunate mutt from dye poisoning. Her clothes, from her dresses to her lingerie, were designed and made by renowned and very expensive couturier Charles Frederick Worth, and her jewellery collection was valued at one million francs. Cora became a walking fashion plate, envied by women everywhere. Someone even named a drink after her, the Tears of Cora Pearl. I tell you, I could happily get intoxicated on that. By God, but she lives well. She once got through 30,000 francs in two weeks. I couldn't earn that much in two lifetimes. 
I've heard that in her boudoir, she has a custom-made bronze bathtub monogrammed with her initials. Apparently, she sometimes fills it with vintage champagne and then invites her guests to watch her bathe. I certainly now understand what common types mean when they say that they'd drink a lady's bathwater. Her love of fireworks is well known, and they often light up the sky whenever she hosts a soiree. There were so many firecrackers going off during one casino evening that the croupiers are supposed to have flung themselves on the gaming tables in fright and then covered the betting money with their bodies while drunken guests laughed and danced around them. Her long-standing personal chef, named Sale, is, by all accounts, a culinary genius who creates the most luscious feasts imaginable. In winter, when there are no flowers in bloom, he serves fruit on a bed of Parma violets, which apparently cost a king's ransom to import. To the French, food and dining are an important part of one's social standing, unlike in Britain, where they'd serve up an old shoe as long as it was full of roast beef and beer. At one dinner party, Cora dared her guests to cut into the next dish, which, when it was served, was Cora herself, lying naked on a silver platter, her mouth-watering body sprinkled with parsley. A hostess of perfection, she did everything she could to make her dinner guests feel at ease. When one accidentally broke an expensive wine glass, she interrupted his stammering apology by laughing that it was no matter and smashing the rest of the glasses herself. Her suitors went wild trying to please her. One fellow presented her with a silver horse stuffed with jewellery. Another, appealing to her sweet tooth, offered her a box of marron glacé with each confection wrapped in a thousand franc note. Cora happily played off one lover against another in order to increase the value of the gifts that she was offered. A generous fool who sent her a massive bouquet of very expensive orchids was galvanised into being an even more generous fool when he heard how she'd strewn his gift upon her floor before dancing a sailor's hornpipe on top of it. Not everyone, of course, finds Cora irresistible. Many find her earthy, vulgar and coarse. Frederick Worth's son took one look at her heavily made-up face and declared her shockingly overdone. Unlike most fashionable Parisian ladies, Cora enjoys the outdoor life of dogs and horse riding. She's not afraid to get her delightful porcelain body tanned a delicious chestnut brown by the sun. She cares not a jot what anybody else thinks, is wealthy beyond avarice and is beloved of the powerful. She's also world famous, even Harper's Weekly in America has written an article about her. A rarity in the modern woman, she is totally in charge of her own destiny. Cora, though, is an enigma, fiercely loyal and generous to her female friends, yet she seems to hate men with as much passion as she enjoys horse riding and sex. The writer Alfred Delvau wrote of her, You are today, madam, the renown, the preoccupation, the scandal and the toast of Paris. Everywhere they talk only of you. Did I mention that she also has an outstanding figure? At the moment, I believe the going rate for an evening with Cora Pearl is around 10,000 francs. I don't suppose you could loan me the money, could you? God, she's handsome. Sadly, Cora's success was fated not to last. The death of the emperor's cousin, Maximilian, in Mexico in 1867 led to a period of extended mourning at the French court, along with a much more restrained and serious mood in French society. It was a mood in which Cora's extravagances would seem vulgar rather than charming. In 1870, France went to war with Germany 
and Cora did her bit, turning one of her houses into a hospital for the wounded and paying for its upkeep out of her own pocket. Before the siege of Paris, she managed to get eight of her horses out of the city on the pretext that she was just exercising them. It was a pretty wise move as they would undoubtedly have been killed and eaten by starving Parisians long before the siege was lifted. After the French were defeated, the Emperor, Cora's most powerful supporter and patron, went into exile in Italy. He continued though to write to her passionately and they were due to meet in London, Cora's first visit to the capital in 20 years. Unfortunately, when booking a suite of rooms at the Grosvenor Hotel, she was recognised as a courtesan and promptly thrown out. In 1872, she began a relationship with a man 10 years her junior by the name of Alexander Duval. A passionate young man from a very wealthy family, he was besotted, some would say obsessed with her. When his father died, he inherited more than 10 million francs and used a huge chunk of it to woo Cora with jewels, horses and ridiculously extravagant gifts. It was said that he once gave her a beautifully bound 100-page book, with each page bookmarked with a 1,000-franc note. His generosity helped Cora to support herself in the absence of the Emperor, who had previously underwritten all of her substantial debts. When Duval stopped showering her with expensive gifts, we're not sure why, Cora flatly refused to see him anymore. Enraged, he went to her house to demand an audience, but Cora's servants just shut the door in his face. He returned later with a loaded pistol. Some say he intended to kill himself in front of Cora, while others say that he had Cora's murder on his mind. Either way, shortly after he confronted Cora at her home, he appears to have accidentally shot himself through the lung. He very nearly died and Cora's reputation was destroyed. He was portrayed as being a lovesick boy from a respectable family, enticed and then rejected by an avaricious whore. It's claimed, probably falsely, Cora said this as he lay bleeding. The pig might at least have done it in the anteroom, then he wouldn't have stained my carpet. France was outraged and two days later she was forced to leave the country. She was taken in by friends and fellow courtesans, but gradually her wealthy protectors abandoned her, including the emperor. With her debts mounting, she still maintained a reckless gambling habit and her looks fading, Cora fell on hard times. A gentleman by the name of Julian Arnold stumbled across her outside a casino in Monte Carlo. He wrote later, I found a woman seated on the curbstone and weeping pitifully. She appeared to be about 50 years of age, handsome, but much bedraggled. She told Arnold that she had been thrown out of her lodgings and had nowhere else to go. Years later, an old friend of hers went to see her when she was living above a carriage shop and was surprised by the warmth of her welcome despite her very much reduced circumstances. When he commented upon how beautiful she still was, Cora replied, No, I'm not. Look, my cheeks are furrowed with tears. Don't say that in the papers. Paris doesn't like women who weep. Cora Pearl died in 1886 at the age of 51. That's a bit of a miserable ending. Next week on Rogue's Gallery Uncovered. Wicked Jimmy. What a c Celebrate the ignominious end of the 18th century's most deeply unpleasant man, James Lowther. I say it every week, I know, but if you've enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to follow or subscribe and, only if you feel so inclined, mind, give it a high rating or a nice review. For more roguish content, get yourself over to roguesgalleryuncovered.com 
sign up to my newsletter and become a lovable rogue. Your support is really helping this podcast to grow and I am disgracefully grateful. That's all for now. See you yesterday.